Well, it is, of course, an unbelievable privilege, joy to be back with my Soma Tacoma family. Uh, it is going to be hugely challenging for me to only talk for 35 or 40 minutes. There is so much I would love to tell you about, um, but maybe another time, if you want to listen into the podcast from Summit Crossing, you can catch up on some of what God's teaching me in our new life in Alabama. I went for a walk last week and asked the Holy Spirit what he wanted me to share with my Soma Tacoma family. And he said, why don't you tell them about the main lesson I've taught you in the last year? I said, well, that sounds like a great idea. So you're going to get my best attempt at a summary of 12 months of learning in, you know, 35 or 40 minutes. And not surprising, maybe in true Abe Meisenberg fashion, I'm going to basically cover Genesis to Revelation. Um, at least I hope that's my reputation. Uh, talk lots about the whole counsel of God. So, in, an, in a nutshell, this lesson is, okay, not, just, this is earth-shaking and not earth-shaking at the same time, but... God's presence is in us. God's presence is in us. And part of my journey here over the last few years in Tacoma before we moved a year ago was really getting to to delve deeper into what it means to abide in Jesus. To make my home in Him in response to what He's done in me John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if you're here today, and you know Jesus Christ, and his blood has washed away your sin, which we just sang about, and if you were a sinner who's now been made holy, holy, holy by God Almighty, then the Father and the Son through the Spirit have come and made their home in you. Like, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? And now in response to that, Jesus says, hey, come and abide in me. It's just a few verses after this. Come and live in me, dwell in me, stay in me, remain in me. Make your home in me. And part of what that looked like for me here was learning to walk and talk with Jesus. And I would take our our dog, Wesley, our chocolate brown Labradoodle, and walk him around the south end and walk and talk with Jesus. And um, in Tacoma, it's not that odd if a person is walking and talking out loud. In Huntsville, it's a little more odd. Um, But we live in this very strange neighborhood. Someone said that it reminded them of the Jim Carrey movie that's like a reality movie about his life. Truman Show. When someone came and visited us and they drove into our neighborhood, they're like, this is like the Truman Show. I'm like, yeah, like all the houses are empty and mine's the only one that has real people living in it because you never see anybody. They just, you know, it's very quintessential, cliche uh, suburb. Garage door goes up, car goes in, garage door comes down, and they can all afford to pay other people to mow their grass. And I don't know who's walking their dogs, but... You don't see people. So there I can walk around my neighborhood and talk out loud and nobody sees me. So I've learned to walk and talk with Jesus. I had a place here called McKinley Park, which is on the east side. Shout out to the east side there. Love McKinley Park. And Jesus met me there. He met me there. I went there the other day with Tim Geislin. We walked around and I showed Tim the very place where Jesus said, here's where I want you to leave Soma Tacoma. And through tears and weeping and me saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And who's going to take care of these people? Jesus said, well, I know somebody who might be able to take care of these people. Why don't you leave him here with me in this green pasture beside these quiet waters? And that's where I left y'all. It's a new word I've learned. (laughs) where I left y'all at McKinley Park. So if you ever are feeling a little disoriented, like, where am I? Just go to McKinley Park and you'll find yourself. Because you're there with Jesus. But what's been so cool is God has, 
has shown me in a place where everything is new, and I'm constantly like taking in all this new data. He's shown me, Abe, this is even more a little bit of what it means to be in my presence all the time. And I'm very thankful for the move in lots of ways, even though it's been the saddest year of my life. But I'm very thankful because I, I have a hunch that when you get disoriented like that in terms of your space and your place, it's a little easier to go a little deeper with God in terms of like understanding his presence. Because when you've been in a place for 20 years and it's very familiar, everything's kind of the same. So I just want to kind of invite you into a little bit of healthy disorientation in your life. Maybe go to a new place. Maybe try a new thing. Maybe try a new habit, a new spiritual discipline and say, hey God, I'm going to purposely like push myself off kilter a little bit and say, where are you in this? But I'm also hoping that the Holy Spirit will help you learn a little bit more today as you catch a vision of Jesus and the fact that if you're a believer in him, he lives inside of you. And what does it mean for that to get worked out in our everyday lives? So, in our culture, there is a message that we hear all the time. And it is this. You have everything you need within yourself. You have everything you need within yourself. You have all the resources that you need within you. You just need to dig a little deeper. I mean, Whitney Houston sang about it 30, 35 years ago, the greatest love of all. Learning to love yourself. It is the greatest love of all. And that message says that you define yourself you create your own identity, that you are your own Lord and Savior, and that you save yourself by discovering yourself, that you are autonomous, and that your self-actualization, your self-definition, and self-rule is what will give you hope, fulfillment, peace, and joy. I mean, I'm not distorting the message, right? I mean, that is on blast all the time, isn't it? Self-actualization, self-rule, self-discovery, joy, fulfillment, peace, happiness. And my question is, how's that working for us? How's that working for us? Oddly, if you listen to music and watch movies and even read the news and, and read novels and, and nonfiction, you find that message about self-actualization all over the place, and you also find that things like loneliness and anxiety and discontentment are at all-time highs. People are lonely and totally discontent and disenchanted, and nothing seems to bring joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, and we are racked with anxiety and fear. It's worse than it's ever been. We're bored, we're isolated, we're afraid to connect with other people. So this message of self-actualization is not getting the job done. It's not carrying the freight. And that's because you and I were made to be identified and defined by someone outside of ourselves. Someone greater than ourselves. We were created for relationship, for interdependence, for mutually beneficial and essential relationships of giving and receiving. And the message of self-actualization tells you, you can create this little ecosystem of giving and receiving right here. And if that's where you are today and you've bought into that, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God wakes you up to the reality that this little circle of happiness and joy and life is not true, and it will actually drive you to greater discouragement, greater isolation, greater despondence, greater anxiety, greater hopelessness. You were made to relate with your Creator. That's what you were made for. We cannot bear the weight of our own identity, our own significance, our own salvation. Humans today are being crushed by the weight of the gospel of self-actualization. It's crushing them. They're not made to bear it. We're not autonomous. We don't have everything we need within ourselves. You need someone outside of yourself who is with you, who sees you, 
who knows you and who loves you. I believe we are discontent. And even those of us who know Jesus, right, because we live in the fishbowl of our culture, it's the water we swim in and it's the air that we breathe, we still battle discontent and we battle anxiety and we battle loneliness even though Jesus is in us. And my prayer, my hope is that we wake up a little bit today to the reality of God with us and that that begins to address our discontent and our loneliness and our anxiety in deeper ways. And if you don't know Jesus, he meets you in a fresh way. In a fresh way. That's my prayer. We're discontent because we long for the satisfaction that can only be found with another. That's why we're discontent. We're anxious because we long for the protection and safety of another. We're lonely because we long for the comfort of another. And we find all, or at least most of this, all the way back in Genesis, in chapter 2, when God creates man in his image, creates the animals, Adam names all the animals, and what does the story say? It was not good that man should be alone. So, Adam and God hanging out alone, solo, wasn't enough. Isn't that odd? It's odd to me. God says, no, you're made for human connection. You're made for connection with me, and you're also made for human connection. You need relationships. You're not autonomous. We see it in the garden, so God creates Adam and Eve, and they choose. God wants to make his home with them. He walks with them in the cool of the day. I live in the hottest place I've ever lived now. Though the humidity followed me. Very strange. It's been humid here for the last few days. Very weird. But in Huntsville, I go outside at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning to walk my dog. And it's like 85, 90 degrees. Okay? Now, this is a supernatural grace from God. Okay, this is a, a great example of if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Okay, my wife and I like the heat. I don't know how to explain it. We, we just keep kind of elbowing each other like, this is so weird. We kind of like it. It's like 90 degrees outside. Let's eat outside. Let's leave the air conditioning and go outside and eat. What are we thinking? I don't know. We just like it. But I'm telling you, the cool of the day is like 530 in a really hot place, okay? And we're, prob- we're probably talking tropical climate here in the Garden of Eden. It's not 9 o'clock at night. It's not 10 o'clock at night because guess how hot it is in Huntsville at 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. It's still 90 degrees, okay? So if you want to find the cool of the day when it's like, you know, a chilly 75, you got to get outside at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30, right when the sun comes up. So God wants to walk with you in the morning. He wants to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And instead, what do they decide? They say, no, we don't want you to make your home with us. We actually choose self-actualization. We choose self-identification. We choose self-definition. We're pushing you out. And God says, well, if you're going to push me out, then I actually have to push you further away. And that's the the double-edged sword of our sin and God's righteous judgment, okay? We push God away, and God says, until we get that cleaned up, you actually are now separated from me. That's how it works relationally. And so God moves on with with humanity, and He chooses a people, the Israelites, and He says, okay, I'm going to dwell with this people. And it starts with Him showing up on Mount Sinai, with trumpet blasts, earthquake, thunderstorm, and uh, volcano, fire, right? I hadn't seen Mount Rainier in a year. I've been back twice in the last year. It's my third time, but surprise, surprise, it was cloudy the last two times. I'm driving Highway 16, going past Target, you know, the beautiful place to get a beautiful view, and I see Mount Rainier, and guys, the first thing out of my mouth was, Now that's a mountain. Because in Huntsville, they call an 800-foot speed bump a mountain. 
And I've had to repeatedly remind my kids, we are not here to correct people's misperceptions about the definition of a mountain. Stop telling your friends, that's not a mountain. Like, just call it a mountain, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, except for cheer for Alabama. We're not going to do that. (laughs) But frankly, the Alabama fans don't care if you cheer for their team or not because they're so stinking good. They don't need you to cheer for their team. Honestly, that's the attitude. It's like, cheer for whoever you want. We don't care. We're going to beat you anyway. So I said, that's a mountain. And then immediately my thought went to Mount Sinai. Because it's really hard for us to imagine standing at the base of of Mount Rainier. Shoot, imagine you're at paradise, right? So you're up a little ways, but you still see this crazy, amazing peak, right? Imagine being at paradise and the volcano is actually erupting and there's an earthquake and there's a crazy thunderstorm on the top, and then we have the trumpets blasting, okay? The supernatural trumpets. You and I would be freaked out. And God is drawing a line saying, you can't come up here, right? Because you chose to reject me, and so there's a line now. You can't come close to me. You're far from me. And yet that very same God who blows their mind speaks to them, and they're all crying like, please don't talk to us like that anymore. We're so scared, Moses. You go talk to God. Just a couple chapters later, he starts laying out this plan for how they're going to make a big tent, like literally a camping tent that you would buy at REI, okay, just a giant camping tent, and God says, I'm going to live in that thing right in the middle of your campsite. Literally, it starts in Exodus 25, just like a couple page turns after this big crazy mountain experience, God says, I'm moving into your neighborhood. Imagine what that must have been like. And they have this tent, and there's the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And everyone's like, that's God's house. He lives here. He lives in our neighborhood. The glorious one who freaked us out on Mount Sinai, he has a place in our hood. It's right over there. See the big fire? You can't miss it. That's where he lives. And some of us, you know, we get into Exodus, like the first half of Exodus is really exciting. There's lots of, uh, you know, death and destruction and um, darkness and, you know, God's like, things are rolling around and we've got plagues and like, wow, God's people are getting set free. And then we get to Exodus 25 and the pace seems to slow way down. And now we're talking about tables and we're talking about tent pegs and we're talking about like goat skin And we're flipping pages like chapter 25, chapter 26, chapter 27. You're like, can we get back to the story already? Nope, chapter 28, chapter 29, 30, 31. And then we get a little story and then it's back to the whole thing again. And God literally says, first he says to Moses, hey, here's the plans that I want you to build. And this is what the table looks like and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the lampstand and all this stuff. Here's Here's the architectural drawings. And then you read a few more chapters, and then God goes into great detail. Like, and so then they picked up the plans and they built everything just according to the specs. And he tells you the whole story again. You're like, what is this all about? The point is, it's God's house, guys. It's God's house. He's giving you the plans to his house because he wants you to realize and be sober-minded about the fact that God came and dwelt among his people. And it is crazy. And if you would have lived there, you would have stood back and gone, This is fearsome. I can't believe God lives in our midst. Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That same glory that scared them out of their minds on Sinai moves into this big giant tent. And throughout all their journeys, whether the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And later on in Israel's history, we build a temple in Jerusalem for the same exact reason. And if you read in Chronicles, you get all the same detail about all the stuff they built and the plans, and then they actually built it. And God cares about his dwelling place. And then we turn to the New Testament John chapter 1 says that in Jesus, we have seen God's glory. The same Yahweh, crazy, majestic, fearsome, awesome God who showed up on Sinai 
locates himself in a human body in the person of Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory through the person of Jesus. And in John chapter 2, Jesus points at himself and he says, I will destroy, destroy this temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Jesus was the first human who was a temple of the living God. Right? God dwelt in a building before, but then Jesus shows up showing off the glory of God and he points at his own body and he says, this is now the temple of God. Because the Holy Spirit had come upon him when he began his ministry. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, before Jesus dies, he goes up on a mountain, he reveals his glory. We just get a glimpse and it's like he takes off his earthly human skin and for a second we get a flash of the glory of Jesus in fullness like Mount Sinai. And Jesus dies on the cross, raises from the dead, and tells his followers, it's better that I'm leaving because I'm going to send my spirit to dwell in you. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and for the first time ever permanently indwelt every Christian, what happened? What was above their heads? A tongue of fire, a little like flame of fire. What's that showing the people? You're the tabernacle now. Just like the fire used to dwell above God's tent in the middle of your campsite, always marked by a pillar of fire, now there's a tongue of fire on everybody's head to say, well, that's a tabernacle, there's God, there's God's presence, there it is. Frankly, I've kind of wondered why God didn't just leave it that way. Like, that would just freak everybody out all the time, right? If we just had a little, like, flicker of fire above our heads all the time, right? That would be weird and crazy, but God does weird, crazy things. I don't know why he didn't just leave it that way. Because it was like that way in the Old Testament. Always pillar cloud, pillar of fire. I suppose we could have a pillar of cloud hanging over our head during the day. Here in the Northwest, that would just be normal. Like, oh, you got your own cloud. There's clouds in the sky, and you got your own following you around. But the Spirit of God comes on His people. And now in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That's individually. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And 2 Corinthians, we are the temple. God's people, we are the temple of the living God. And this is, I just have to pause here and then, and then preach some, some gospel to you and then we'll get practical for a second. Listen, friends, this is completely mind-blowing. If you're bored with the tabernacle stuff in Exodus and Numbers and then bored in 2 Chronicles with the temple stuff, read it and realize, like, this is talking about the reality of my spiritual relationship with God now. He lives in me. He lives in me. He's in you, just like he was in the temple, just like he was in the tabernacle. And if you're like me, that should simultaneously do two things. It should, it should just blow your mind and go like, I get one little inkling of what that means and I'm just caught up like, thank you, God. How can that possibly be true? I worship you. And then on the other hand, I immediately go, well, what difference does that make? What difference does that make? We can stand in here and sing these awesome songs we just sang and get excited because God lives in us, but then lunch is coming, right? And the rest of our day. Before I get to that, in terms of the practical stuff, I just want to tell you, please, please, please do not lose sight. And what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus preaches this same message. Never lose sight of the fact that the only way, the only thing that explains a sovereign, holy God, Mount Sinai God, coming to set up shop in your heart is the grace there is no other explanation. Because you said to God, I'm going to go set up my house over here. I don't want to make my home in you. I'm going to set up my house over here. And God says, okay, fine. There's a flaming sword and angels crossing the way. Like, if you ever do decide to come back home, you got to deal with those guys. And guess what? Jesus dealt with those guys on your behalf. But then he didn't just deal with those guys on your behalf. He let the flaming sword of the angels hit him. The wrath of God hit him. So now the way to God is open. But guess what? He doesn't just open the way and then say to you, okay, I'm over here now. I'm just waiting for you to come back to me. And now the way is clear. But come on back. 
No, no, no. He comes and gets you. He leaves the 99 to go find the one. Nothing else I say is going to make a hill of beans if you don't get this point. It is God's grace, God's grace that you are a temple of the living God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a temple of the living God, like what is this crazy man talking about, right? Because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. If you're perishing here today, I sound like a fool. And guess what? I'm willing to because I love you and I love Jesus enough to do that. I love him and I love you enough to be willing to sound like a fool, praying that the Holy Spirit would take what sounds like foolishness in your ears and turn it and make it sound like saving truth. Because if you're here and you're like, I'm lonely, I'm depressed, I'm filled with anxiety, I ain't got no answers, I've never felt more alone in my whole life, who's this God who wants to come and make his home in me? I guess I have to clean up my act enough for him to come or I'll crawl back to him and beg him to take me back. None of that's true. He's coming to you right now. He's coming to you through the words I'm saying. And he's saying to you, I'm willing to pick you up and carry you back home and make my home in your heart because Jesus Christ took the blow for you. He cleaned you up. We sang a song, we're sinners made holy, holy, holy. Sinners can't clean up their act enough for God to come and make their home in here. It's not possible. So what difference does this make? Three things. Number one, God is with us, and therefore we are not alone. God is with us, and therefore we are not alone. One of the most repeated sentences in the Bible is, do not fear, for I am with you. I'm with you. At the end of Matthew's gospel, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his followers, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is with us, and we are not alone. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a temple of the living God. You are a tabernacle. You are never alone. You are never alone. You're God's house. You're God's dwelling place. You are never alone. Single people, when you lay in your bed at night, you're not alone. You're not alone. Moms, if you happen to be a mom who's home with their kids during the day, I know it seems weird because there's little humans, but I understand a little bit of how lonely that can feel. You're not alone in your home at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. You're not. You're not alone. Widows, widowers, you're not alone at the breakfast table. You're not alone. Kids, get some kids in the room. First of all, all kids, you're never alone. You're never alone. You feel alone. You feel afraid. You're never alone. And God puts people around you to show you that you're not alone. But if you happen to be a kid who feels extra alone because your dad's not around, you're not alone. You have a better dad who's already following you around because he loves you and he sees you. Married people, you are not alone even when it feels like there's miles of distance between you and the person in the bed next to you. Every married person in the room could give me an amen on that. (laughs) You're not alone. The Bible says we are united with Jesus. We're one with him. We're seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are never alone, which means there is no more sacred, secular divide. Nothing, as a Christian, who has the Spirit of God, who is a tabernacle of the living God, a temple of the living God, nothing is is 
purely secular. Nothing. We have the opportunity for all things to be holy. Remember, God said to Moses, the burning bush, take off your sandals. Why? Because where you're standing is what? Holy ground. You are a walking, burning bush. You're a walking, burning bush. We could greet each other and say, hey, take off your shoes, bro. You're, in, you're on holy ground. <laughs> and I would respond, well, I, I, holy ground was already here when I walked in, so we'll both just leave our shoes on. Right? Everywhere we go, the holiness of God is with us. There's no sacred secular divide. There's no clean and unclean. There's no time. As a Christian, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As a Christian, you're never unclean. You're never unclean. Hebrews says you've been cleansed in your conscience and in your heart and your body. Your body. Most of us who are adults in the room have probably committed some form of sexual sin along the way. God is saying to you, that's been washed away. You're clean. That's good news. That is good news. We're clean. So you're never in a place where you're like, well, I feel really unclean right now, so God must be far away. No, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You squirm in his embrace, (laughs) but he's got his arm around you. There's no sacred secular divide. There's no clean unclean, which means that everywhere we go, we can experience Jesus' presence through creation, through other people, through the food that we eat, through sleep, through our five senses. I have this theory. This is just an aside, okay? This is, this is not the Word of God. I have this idea <laughs> that God gave us five, the five senses are the way that we do relationships. If you think about it, there's no way you can relate to a person outside of five senses, and you start to think about people who've lost a sense, right? I saw Becca Olson here working with Deaf Teen Quest, right? Like when you lose a sense, it, it, it hinders your ability to relate. And, and people who've lost a sense feel very isolated relationally, right? So like God gave us these five senses to relate. So what does it mean to relate to God through your sense of smell? Right? I mean, it's the aroma of Christ, right? We bring the aroma of Christ. That's just a theory, okay? That's... But I'm working with that, and I'm saying to myself, how do I experience the presence of Jesus because he's always with me through my five senses, through my body? This is the temple of the living God. So before I left, I had some places that I would walk around and talk and, and experience the presence of God, and he's been so gracious to give me three places that are all five minutes or less from our home. I got some pictures of a few of them. And of course, it's hardly going to do it justice. You will not be able to feel the heat and the humidity coming through the picture. Um, but this, this is uh, probably, I don't know, half a mile from our house. Indian Creek Greenway. So it's bike path, running path. But then you go down around that corner there that you can see off to the left. I'll show the next picture. And then it's that, like, into the woods. That's just, like, half a mile from our house. I walk down there. I've taken the dog down there. I ride my bike there often. And, I mean, I go, I, I ride through there on my bike, and, and I, I feel the presence of God. I'm like, this bike ride is holy. I feel God's presence all around me. And it's like he's, he's, he's with me. And then at the end of our cul-de-sac, I'll go out my door, turn right, walk to the end of our cul-de-sac, and there's a little creek and some woods that I take our dog. So I have a little video, and I narrated the video, but the, the audio is no good. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to narrate it in real time. Say, so go ahead and roll the video. So this is like end of our cul-de-sac, and I take my dog down here all the time. He's going to show up. Uh, you can't see him. He's off to the left. He's going to make a cameo at the end. But nice little woods. Off to the right is where the little creek runs through, like right through those trees. There's minnows in there. I hear that there's snakes in there. There's Wesley just having a ball. And we go down there, I don't know, two, three, four times a week and enjoy God's presence. 
And I go down there, and I feel him all around me. I was asked this last week to give advice to a friend's son who turned 21. And my friend said, if you could give advice to your 21-year-old self, what would it be? And I had a few things. One, by the way, was uh, invest early. I didn't do that, even if it's like $20 a month. Like, just throw it in an IRA and close your eyes and don't worry about it for the next 35 years. Because when you're young, you have time on your side. And when you're not as young as I used to be, like I am now, you start to feel the pinch. So I gave him that. But I also said, if I could talk to my 21-year-old self, I would say, become a Christian mystic much sooner. Become a Christian mystic much sooner. I've said this to you before. We are decapitated Christians. We've lopped off our heads. We read theology, which is good, but it stays here. And we think, 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 think about how really interesting it is that we're a tabernacle of the living God. And we go for a bike ride and we have no concept of how holy that moment is. We need to put our heads back on our bodies. <laughs> our bodies have a heart, have soul, have arms and legs, skin, largest organ in the body. Probably telling you stuff all the time that matters. We are not alone, and I am convinced that God's presence, realizing that you're not alone, is what will address our nagging discontentment and boredom. Realizing you're not alone ever. It'll do other stuff too, but I'm convinced it is really hard to be discontent and bored if you do anything with an awareness of the holiness of the moment and the presence of God. You can't be bored in God's presence, guys. You can't. So you're not alone at work. You're not alone at school. You're not alone in your car. You're certainly not alone when you read your Bible. You're not alone when you pray. You're not alone when you sing. You're not alone when your phone is in your hand. You're not alone when you watch Netflix. You're not alone when you go for a walk. You're not alone on an airplane. You're not alone in the grocery store. You're not alone in the coffee shop. I could keep going. Everything is holy for the person who is a tabernacle and a temple of the living God. All right, second. First one, God is with us. We're not alone. Second, God sees us. Therefore, we are seen. God sees us and therefore we are seen. I almost preached the story of Hagar today from Genesis chapter 16. But God said, no, just use it as a little story. She is Abraham and Sarah's Egyptian slave. Sarah wants to have a baby. She decides to employ Hagar as her slave to be sort of a surrogate mother carry this baby, but it's going to be Sarah's baby because Hagar's a slave. Hagar gets pregnant. Sarah gets very upset and jealous. Hagar is feeling used. Understandably, she takes off. She runs away. God tracks her down. And he says, hey, listen, um, I want you to go back, but I want you to know I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of that child who's in your womb. Now, this is Ishmael here, okay? There's a lot of, like, brokenness and interesting stuff that comes out of that. But never lose sight of the fact that God told Hagar that her son, Ishmael, was going to be really influential. And he was. And he, he speaks this blessing over her. And then she says, she says, you are the God who sees. Isn't that interesting? An Egyptian slave woman is the one who teaches us that God is the God who sees. That's unexpected. Genesis 16, 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. In other words, I've been seen by the God who sees. 
or I see the God who sees. God sees you. Over the past year, one of the main things the Father has shown me about my story, which I've shared quite a bit with you over the last few years, is that I have often felt unseen, particularly by some of the most important people in my life. Feel overlooked, feel unseen. And so it's not surprising that one of the things that I've heard dads say the most to me in this last year is, I see you. I see you. I see you. This is another level of intimacy beyond I'm with you. Right? It's one thing to say, I'm with you. I'm with you. My parents were with me all growing up, but I didn't always feel like they saw me. It's different. God sees you. And in particular, today I want to highlight that he sees you in your suffering. Because when we suffer, we instinctively call out, God, where are you? But the story of the Bible shows us over and over and over and over and over and over again that God is not only with us in our suffering, but he sees us in our suffering. And some of you here today have suffered immensely. Death of a parent, death of a child, cancer, infertility, relational strife with family members or friends or co-workers, depression, anxiety, addiction, shattered dreams, shattered dreams, financial ruin, parenting struggles, chronic health problems. You have struggled. You have suffered. And God says, I see you. And one of the things He wants us to do, He invites us to do, He beckons us to do, is respond by crying out to Him and and weeping in our suffering and say, oh God, thank you that you're with me and you see me, which gives me the courage and the faith to say, God, this is hard and I'm sad and I cry out to you. Don't forget that the death of Jesus' close friend brought him to tears, even though Jesus was about to resurrect him. Still weep. I believe that God's presence addresses our anxiety. Our anxiety addresses our fear. God's with us so we can experience fulfillment and joy, but God sees us so we can experience the peace and the safety, the comfort of God. And finally, God knows us, so we are known. We're not alone, we're seen, and we're known. Just a few quick verses. It's pretty interesting how, how much this idea of being known is found in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, second coming, we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You're fully known by God right now. You're fully known. John 10, 14 and 15, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows you because you're part of his flock. Matthew 10, 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows you. 2 Timothy 2, 19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. When I got to Huntsville for the first several months, as I would walk and talk with, with Jesus and identify and articulate my emotions, ask the Holy Spirit, hey, how am I feeling today? Help me identify my feelings, because I want to walk like the psalmist and bring my emotions before you and surrender to you and be honest with you, one of the main emotions that I would repeatedly articulate is the feeling of being unknown. And God would give me lots of grace for that and not like point fingers at people, but just to realize that you don't replace 19 years of relationships in 19 hours or 19 days or 19 weeks or even 19 months. It's going to take time. And I felt very unknown. 
And by God's grace, I've pursued some men for, for you know, close relationship in that church family. And so I'm beginning to feel known. Just the other day before I left, I went for a walk again in the morning and praying. And, and I had had a time the night before where I got to share with this 21-year-old man some, some counsel. And I was there with other men who'd been asked to speak into the, this, man's, this young man's life on his 21st birthday. And it was a powerful time. God's presence was, was thick. We, we, we really all connected well. And that next morning, I said, Holy Spirit, help me identify how I'm feeling. And the first word was known. And I called my one buddy there who I've been sharing this with, like, hey, bro, I feel unknown. And, and he wouldn't feel judged by it. He'd be like, yep, I know that's probably really hard. But I finally start to feel a little bit known. But I have been so blessed to have men in this church who knew me, know me, love me, pursued me, and ask me on a regular basis, how are you feeling? The rich blessing. And it's been so painful. I mean, I, my body has literally ached in this feeling of being unknown. And yet, for the past year, my friendship with Jesus has never been sweeter. My relationship with my wife has gotten much closer. I'm a better friend with my wife and to my wife than I've ever been before because I got put in this position of needing to press in to Jesus. The place that I want to apply this to, and then I'll wrap it up, we are known in our sin and shame. There's a lot of different ways I could apply this, but I want to apply it to be known in our sin and shame. You look at the seven, church, seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus tells them how much he knows them. He says things like, I know your works, I know your toil, I know your patient endurance, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know where you dwell, I know your works, I know your love, your faith, and your service. Like he, know, he knows these churches. He says it over and over and over again. I know you. And he says, but I have this against you. Does that a couple times? He says, you're neither hot nor cold, right? That's one of the famous lines that we know. So I know you, but there's this issue we need to talk about. And then he says, the one whom I love, I reprove and discipline. There's this pattern, like, I know where you're at. There's an issue we need to talk about. I know that too. And I'm only bringing it up because I love you. And I want you to be brought to repentance so that it will restore our intimacy. Why? Because you're squirming in my embrace. Yeah, I know you in your sin. I know you in your shame. And the letters end with this affirmation, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. So it's like, I know you, I know where you're at, I know you're suffering, I know your pain. I have this issue, I'm bringing it up because I want to talk about it and lead you to repentance. And oh, by the way, I just want to remind you that your salvation is secure in me. And one day we're going to be forever together. So today God knows you in your sin and in your shame. And by the way, is there anything that causes us to feel more lonely than our shame? I don't think there is. Your shame is what tells you you have to hide, right? That's what Adam and Eve did. Your shame is what tells you you have to cover yourself. I can't be vulnerable. Your shame is what tells you I have to blame other people, which means I don't take responsibility for my stuff, which is a serious hindrance to relationship. God knows you in your sin and in your shame. But friends, if you're ever tempted to hide, if you're ever tempted to say, man, I couldn't tell anybody about this. First, be honest with God about it. He already knows about it. And then pray that he will give you the wisdom to know who to tell. Like, with your deepest, darkest secret, you don't want to get on stage and blab it to everybody on day one. God might take you there someday. Start with somebody. Bring it out into the light. He knows you. He's with you. He sees you. And he loves you. Now, the craziest thing about all this is that we can be a temple and a tabernacle of the living God who are never alone, who are seen, who are known, because Jesus Christ 
on the cross, became alone. Jesus Christ became unseen. When we sing how deep the Father's love, we say the Father turned His face away. Jesus Christ became treated like He was unknown. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you treating me like you don't know me? It's because He became sin on your behalf. Jesus was the temple. It was destroyed so you could be a temple. Jesus became alone, unseen, and unknown so you could be with God. You could be seen and you could be known. Never lose sight of the magnitude of the sacrifice of Jesus for you to make possible the very presence of God dwelling in you. Now, probably none of you are about to move across the country. And maybe some of you folks I've never met before. Maybe you're right on the cusp of that. You're probably going to like, be in the same house today and tomorrow and the next day and for a little, little while here. Ask God to show you today. where. Sh- help me see and experience your presence in the normal stuff of life. You're about to go eat lunch. Don't miss the opportunity to say, this is holy. This is a gift. This is real. I'm about to put food in my mouth and taste it and smell it. And feel it. I'm alive. Jesus is alive. He's with me. This is real. That's the life that Jesus died to give us as temples of the living God. Let me pray. And we'll remember Jesus for communion. Jesus, thank you that you you were willing to let your temple be destroyed so that we could be a temple. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd make this real to my brothers and my sisters and anyone here who does not yet know about Jesus. That they would long for this awesome picture of union and communion with you. Jesus, thank you that we get to remember you, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us through communion. As we take it and we put it in our hands, may we realize we're coming to the table empty and you fill us. May we realize that you instituted this. You said, taste and see that the Lord is good. You said, no one can be my disciple unless they eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's not literal, but you're inviting us to engage this very thing with an awareness of how holy it is and that it's real and that you're in the middle of it. Jesus, you're in the middle of us right now because we're the temple of the living God as as the people of God, as the church of God. Make this real to us, Holy Spirit. It's It's a work that only you can do. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here. Would you guide my brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus, as we go to the table to remember what you've done for us, what you've made possible for us. We worship you. Amen.